0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Burning Desire Show. I'm with Carissa Chia today. Um, The way way we came uh, uh, to know each other is is quite interesting. It's through uh, my business, which is Allergy, which is the app. You can have a look at that in your own time. Um, And Carissa currently works at Foursquare, and we're looking at a partnership. And then um, one of Carissa's colleagues who was on the call as well, uh, mentioned my television background because Carissa and also your colleague as well, right, has a, t- a television background, if I'm not mistaken. And then as you'll see in the <laughs> backdrop of Carissa's shot here, if you're listening on audio, you can't, but if you're watching on YouTube, you can, that there's a little Emmy in the back there. Um, and so, yeah, her, her colleague was like, oh, did you not see the Emmy behind her? I'm like, I didn't, honestly, but now it's like glaring, I can see it and it's really cool. And I was like, I'd love to know more about the the story. And therefore, um, we arranged this uh, this podcast, really so it's thanks a for thrill that.
1: to be here thank yeah. you Charles no
0: it's cool it's cool so again in the, slightly in the pre-call we talked about um where you grew up but like for obviously I've heard that like tell us kind of uh, where you grew up and you have been experienced different countries that'll be something we'll come to as well hopefully but yeah where did you grow up and, and um what were you we interested in back then do you remember when you're younger
1: Yes, absolutely. So this is rewinding quite a few years. (laughs) I hope I'm not aging myself. Um, But yeah, so I spent uh, the majority of my childhood in two Countries specifically Indonesia and Australia. So I spent my early childhood in Indonesia. My family is uh, Chinese Indonesian in terms of ethnicity. And you know the in 1998, I'm um, not sure how well you know the Indonesian history, but there was a big uh, riot to overthrow the, I guess dictator of the time, um, President Suharto. So there were a lot of riots that were targeting um, the Chinese minority in the country. So at that point, my parents said look you know we have to think of you know our only daughter Carissa's future so they ended up applying for uh, you know visas or resident visas to live in either Australia or Canada mm-hmm. and uh, luckily we actually got both and they decided you know what Australia is closer to Indonesia so it just made more sense to be you know closer to our family so yeah I spent um, a real part of my childhood in Jakarta basically up till um, the end of primary school and so yeah and then I moved to Sydney English was my second language so learning English was definitely a challenge um, and I I, you know immersed myself in obviously the language once I moved to Australia um, started you know a whole new in a whole new education system whole new country didn't know anyone except for maybe one family that helped us with the move with the migration from Indonesia to Sydney and yeah I basically started a whole new life and Sydney is definitely nearing dear to my heart and it's it was exciting for me to learn that you're thinking of moving there. Yeah. So I would love to you know dive deeper into that at some point. Uh, okay. but basically yes, I um, went through high school, college University of Sydney um, and actually started my um, my like professional life I would say in Sydney in the publishing industry for uh, Thomson Reuters. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they're basically yep. a finance and legal uh, publishing company. And that was my first kind of taste of, you know, corporate life. That was um, my first gig there was as a freelance um, telesales operator. So basically it was, you know, dialing in at 6 a.m. with a long call sheet in front of me. And then um, just getting, you know, getting down to business, like trying to sell as many um, publications, both digital and hard copy as much as possible. So that was
0: individuals we try and sell to.
1: So it was actually a B2B. So it was our target audience was mainly academics, um, again, in the finance and legal worlds, um, as well as um, professionals.
0: You like in corporate world. You mentioned, sorry, I didn't catch the exact dates. What age were you when you moved from Jakarta to Sydney?
1: Yeah, it was actually 12. So just okay. at the end of primary school.
0: Fine. Mm-hmm. And do, do you remember you mentioned uh, a difference in the education system? I always find it's quite interesting with different countries, how things differ. Do you remember the, the things that were significantly different between the Australian and the Indonesian system?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, in the Indonesian um, education system, I remember quite vividly that a lot of the material that we were learning had to be memorized or wrote learned there was a lot of uh, there was not a lot of critical thinking behind you know some of the homework that we had to do I found that in Australia you know being you know in a western developed world there was a lot more emphasis on critical thinking and and the answer you know your responses to say you know questions in in English for example were not as black and white right there are nuances to your responses things are open to interpretation and you're encouraged to question them and question and really grapple with the material. And that was something that had never, I had never been encouraged to do um, as a young girl growing up in Indonesia.
0: And then, so how does the system work in Australia? Do you, because um, in the UK, for example, at age, um, I'm thinking now, I think it's age 15, 16, you start to choose the first like uh, routes or routes, you might say depending where based, um, as to what subjects you're going to specialise in to a degree. And then when you get to 17, you, you further kind of um, specify. And then that leads into your college, university experience as to really what you can kind of um, what you can take. How does that work in the Australian system?
1: Yes, it's actually quite similar. So you start off in seventh grade, basically um, learning everything, you know, all the languages that were offered, um, all the sciences. And then you, as, as you go along, you kind of funnel and filter through. Uh, the subjects and pick, you know, what you what you like, what you enjoy most, what you don't enjoy. Uh, the funny thing about that was that because English was my sec- is my second language, it was tough for me to follow the English curriculum in Australia. So I excelled at mathematics. Uh, surprise, surprise, because you know numbers are universal, universal, right? Mm. So uh, it's funny. I yeah, I was only really good at math, but my mom instilled in me to to, you know, basically not just get better at English, but be, you know, on the same level as everyone else who grew up, you know, in Australia. So I worked really hard to improve my English. And the funny thing is by the end, you know, towards the end of high school, I ended up being, you know, falling in love with English. I ended up, you know, majoring in it in college afterwards. So it's just funny how I pivoted from, you know, math being mathematics being my only, you know, subject that I could really rely on, you know, excelling at to actually just, you know, pivoting completely to the languages. Um, including French but mainly English literature and I just fell in love with again how everything was just open to interpretation there was no you know you weren't you couldn't be completely you know wrong in your interpretation as long as you can back up your thesis mm. or your argument.
0: It's interesting I was talking to someone the other day about English as a, as a language and I think obviously you've learned as a second language so you know better than I. It's really hard like there's so many like nuances the word you use and I think that's best to describe it like you know like the word like psychology as a silent p or like like all this so there's just so many little like tiny rules that don't make any sense in the global scheme of things whereas like i feel like again you've got splits in french as do i at least yes you have male and female but like and there's a, but there's a structure of verbiage there's a, there's a you know sounds are pretty structured I, I would say but like yeah english um you can't rote learn that it's not possible like you just it's it's i don't know how do you learn it i, no, I have no idea
1: Absolutely. I mean, just starting with the grammar, I think, was one thing. And you know, like you said, the pronunciation, the phonetics behind you know, every word and how there are silent um, syllables. Yeah, I think it was it was just like kind of starting with the building blocks of the language. Like you couldn't just jump in and start reading a novel, for example. So you really had to break down the words and almost go Kind of rewind to their, you know, the syllable, um, the syllables of every word, and yeah, it was tough. It was tough learning it uh, while I was, you know, growing up in in Indonesia. Like it was, especially in the Indonesian language, there is no like your verb for past tense and present tense. It stays the same. There is no, you know, conjugating a verb, for example. So that was something I had to, I had to definitely learn from a from young age and keep practicing it.
0: So it's interesting you mentioned that your mother was influential in um, making, turning your weakness into, into a passion, a strength, I suppose, within uh, English. You put that down to just sheer hard work and just trying to like, you know, impress her or do well by her that that then led into something that you're passionate about. And that's quite an interesting, um, like, you know, situation.
1: Yeah, I think she really um, wanted me to be able to not just prove to you know other people, but prove to myself that I can overcome my biggest weakness, which at that time was the English language. Uh, so I definitely embraced that. I w- was definitely up for the challenge. Um, I didn't, I did not, I guess I was also internally, I wanted to fight the stereotype that, you know, Asians are good at mathematics. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to break out of that shell mm-hmm. <laughs> from a very young age. Uh, yeah. And I think I must credit some of the English teachers that I had who kind of, you know, guided me at every step in terms of just not, not just in terms of mastering the subject at school, but also, you know, as I acclimate to a new country and a new environment. So there were definitely a couple of English teachers that I'm, you know, forever grateful for, for for helping me um, immerse myself into that, that world.
0: And when you got to college or university, in uh, University of uh, Sydney, right? correct right. um you you is it again in the Australian system do you decide up front that you I know you uh, majored in English and advanced advanced French um mm-hmm. did do you decide before you go that's what you're gonna do or do you just get in enroll into the university or college and then as you go down the roads do you start kind of getting all right I want to take that class and this class and that leads to a number of points that go towards a major is that how it works there
1: yeah, it's actually yes, you're your spot on there. So we we do decide what we want to, the degree is quite specialized from the get-go. Whereas okay. I don't know how familiar you are with the American college yeah. system, is yeah. where you kind of it's almost like high school version yes. two, yes. and then yes. you start, you know, specializing as you go. But I think it's Sydney, it's pretty career oriented in terms of the degrees that you can take. And of course, I picked the one that wasn't that didn't pigeonhole me into a specific you know, line of profession. And Mm -hmm. that, that was definitely, I was definitely, I would say one of like an anomaly among my circle of friends, for example, because they, you know, they were certain they were going to be a lawyer. So they, you know, did a bachelor of laws or, or a science or medicine. So,
0: so was you doing like, um, the the studies were, was it more about like the literature or language, a bit of both, um, what you were studying?
1: Yeah, it was definitely more literature focused. So a lot of essays, you know, 2,500, 5,000 word essays. Uh, I enjoyed the research aspect of, of my degree. But I must be honest, during my, I was very, um, the other thing that my mom instilled with me in me was um, working, working, like earning money. So I actually entered the workforce when I was 15. So I was still in high school quite young. I worked at my local library. Um, but i must say that for me i wasn't i could have been more immersed in my degree or in you know campus life because i was actually a bit distracted because i actually held that full-time job i mentioned um at Thomson reuters at the publishing company uh, oh, so the by,
0: college yes wow. exactly it was
1: during full-time full-time studies and full-time wow. work so wow. it was definitely tough juggling the two but i i loved the rigor of that professional environment and just being able to, you know, save up for, for what I wanted.
0: So, so the Thompson job, was that a bit of a, was there any reason why you chose that particular company or it just the way it just happened? You know, you applied to a bunch of places and they, they took you Was it more about that at that point?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I I applied to a bunch of places. I pre, prior to that I had been working at a stationery and bookstore. Uh, so I wanted to just you know get my feet wet in the corporate world. So that's um, the opportunity that came up. Um, and I honestly thought that was you know one of the best like first you know corporate jobs a girl could a young girl could ever ask for because you were thrown in at the deep end. You you know you were I was in the sales world, and you know selling skills. You know I it helps you all through life in all aspects of life. So it was really great to, to get in kind of very early. And I was, you know, the youngest in the company, it was great. I had some great mentors that I really um, looked up to.
0: So you spent, was the whole time spent at Thompson Reuters? Was it like two, is it two or three years? If I'm not mistaken, was the whole time in the sales force or did you, did you move within the, the company?
1: Yeah. Sales and advertising were kind of our, our, um, the, the departments I worked in. Yes. Uh, I honestly it was like I said the great introduction to the corporate world and then towards the end of my college years that's when I took a prolonged vacation in Jakarta just to spend more time with my grandparents Mm -hmm. and then the opportunity to intern at a tv station in Jakarta actually came up during Mm -hmm. my you know holiday I thought I was just there to spend time with family but then um, one of the English speaking shows on a local network there um, needed you know extra help um, especially with some who you know is able to speak English and so yeah I signed up for it and my you know three-week holiday ended up being a two-month holiday or a two-month working holiday at that point and that was my first foray into television production specifically in the news
0: section. And so um, I guess you must have thoroughly enjoyed that right because you then went on to a career within there Um, so what aspects of of that kind of world obviously it's very different to what you had done previously and you kind of I guess fell into it like what did you really love about the the TV space?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love the environment. Like it's very hands-on. First of all, you're not, you know, you're not just sitting behind a desk all day. You're in the control room. You're running around to different different you know, editing rooms or editing bays. Like I enjoyed that. I wasn't, you know, behind a desk from nine to five. That was definitely a big um thing that I noticed from the get-go. Um, the other thing that I really enjoyed was that the words that I scripted, so the words that I put into a script actually ended up on air. And it's amazing, like for an intern, you know, for a young intern, not to have your work almost it wasn't edited by anyone, like every single word I wrote on, the, you know, and at the time, I was just writing it on paper, ended up being spoken by the anchor wow. of the show on, you know, the national network. Um, so yeah, that was delightful for me. I, I didn't know that it was, you know, quote, unquote, that easy for your for my writing or my words to be put on screen. And, um, and, and this is a question I get a lot is, did you ever consider, you know, being, on-camera talent and honestly no because I like that I got you know I like I've I have so much respect for a lot of on-camera talent but I just never saw myself in that light I like being able to control the narrative and control the content Um, especially in my later years I noticed that on-camera talent sometimes they don't have time to dive deep into a story and do the research behind it and come up with their own scripts so I like being on the producer side of things where I get to, to, you know, control the narrative that way.
0: So you, you do the three months in Indonesia. Um, then do you go back to Sydney? Like what what's, what happens next?
1: Yeah, it was a, a, a two month internship. You know, my life was still, you know, calling in Sydney, my whole family was in Sydney. So uh, after that, I decided, you know what, when I go back to Sydney, I'm going to pursue a career in broadcast nice. uh, production. That was when I decided, you know, I fell in love with that world. I wanted to know what it was like in Sydney um, to work in that industry because I had never been exposed to it. Um, And yeah, I was very determined. I started just emailing a bunch of networks. uh, And luckily, I got an internship again in Sydney. And I still had about a semester of university left. So I was very distracted again by this whole, (laughs) this newfound love of television production. And so um, I emailed one of the exec- executive producers and supervising producers at a network called Seven Network in Sydney, and she happened to be an alumna from my high school. So I think that helped, you know, get my, again, get, get my foot in the door and get that, um, that internship spot. And at the time it was completely unpaid. So again, I was very lucky that I was still living at home and able to support, you know, myself in, during, during that free internship
0: was was that the the morning show was that a little bit after that?
1: yeah, that was the morning show that was um actually the only show I worked on in in Australia um but yeah again, it was another like eye opening experience um just to because for me, the television world had been this like mysterious kind of bubble that like I didn't know anyone who had successfully you know broken into that field mm-hmm. um and then yeah it was a godsend to just be able to find, you know, an alumna in that field. I think that was very, you know, very coincidental and very, very unfortunate. And then, um, yeah, and just to be able to see like from an intern's perspective, again, you're, I, I wasn't getting coffee, right? I was actually, again, produced, starting to write stories and pitch ideas. And it really just helped me get, get a feel for, for the field. And of course it was a bonus to, you know, brush, um to, to bump into different celebrities who are visiting for the, sh- the show. And, and it was, you know, even though it was an Australian network, it, we definitely had a lot of international guests too. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a great, great exposure. And I was definitely, swept up in in the excitement of it all.
0: What kind of uh, guests did you have on the show that you kind of brushed uh, shoulders with?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of, definitely a lot of TV stars, you know, the stars. Uh, I remember um, at the time, um, Sai, the Korean singer, was definitely, you know, <laughs> the the talk of the town and talk of the world really after his video went viral um so you know we had a concert at the network and i got to um meet him and um at my i have a little brother he got to come along with me so that was that was really nice uh but yeah i also brushed uh i mean i also met up with like a lot of um like i would produce the segments that had these celebrity interviews so uh, i think one memorable one was you know um the one one direction when they came there was a sea of fans just outside of the network like it was very hard for us to who worked there to get in and out of the the <laughs> network so just um yeah that was definitely one but yeah a lot of a lot of you know entertainment personalities uh, visited our show
0: so you do the internship uh whilst you're finishing your studies your final semester you finish mm-hmm. your studies and then do you go back as an intern or you just continued the the internship effectively yeah
1: Yeah, I continued on um, as a freelance producer. So after three months of the unpaid internship, I um, was hired as a freelance producer for three months and then became a permanent full-time producer there at at the morning show.
0: I know it's a big thing in TV, this kind of unpaid um, internship piece. Like, what's your view on that now? Obviously, you've got more experience in the working world. Do you think it's fair? Do you think it's a rite of passage? Do you think it's taking advantage? Like, what's your opinion on that?
1: Yeah, I think I think some pay is definitely necessary because I know not a lot of people are in a position to just, you know, work for free. You know, a lot of, you know, students, a lot of um, young professionals, you know, need to to sustain their life, you know, even if it's just the basic needs like, you know, like food and living expenses. So I do think uh, it is it would be better if, you know, every network offered paid internship. Yeah.
0: And so. um your career then with um with the morning show um did you just like what sort of you mentioned you'd produce some celebrity spots like what, what other sort of things were you doing um producing wise and people that don't understand like what does a producer actually do like what's the role
1: that's a very good question that's a question I definitely have received um over the years so producer is I would say almost like almost like a puppet master behind the scenes in a way. I think that's a good analogy because you're, you have to have an aerial view or a bird's eye view of all the moving parts that go into producing a show and especially a live, you know, a live broadcast show. I think there is a tenacity that's necessary in this sh- in, in that role because you're not only grappling with, you know, internal stakeholders, internal, um, like moving parts, but also externally, right? So there's gotta be a tenacity in, for example, just booking the talent because other networks want, you know, this the talent that's, you know, that everyone is vying for, for that, for a particular story. So just getting there first was definitely a key, a key uh, aspect of the role. Um, and then just being persistent. Uh, I think persistence is a, a big part of that role. And that's what kind of set me up For the rest of uh, my career, because there's a lot of rejection in in that field, not just from, you know, trying to book talent, but also in terms of your career and just being trying to get that producer title was was not easy. Um, And it isn't easy um, across the board, whether it's in Australia or America, from my experience. So so just building that thicker, like kind of having a thicker skin just from from dealing with rejection and not taking your work so personally, like, like, I think we um, talked about previously, like just having that boundary between, I guess, who you are as a person and what you do, I think was really important because if your whole identity is wrapped up in what you do, then who are you outside of that environment? Mm -hmm. So that was definitely a question that I had to grapple with um, as I immersed myself and got deeper and deeper into the world of TV production. Uh, But yeah, in terms of just in the, just basically what a producer does, it's, um, you kind of, Control every moving part, so whether it's you know the the talent that you're trying to get on on the show, the script. Like, what's the angle here? Like, why should an audience who's watching at home care about your segment? So that was one of the big questions we had to ask. And if we can't answer that question um, easily, then it's not a segment worth airing, right? And then um, everything from writing scripts and preparing the questions for the anchors to ask the guests, and depending on the nature of the segment. But yeah, from writing, so there's a lot of writing. There's a lot of interviewing, like pre-interviewing talent, making sure um they're you know set up for for the show. And um, I guess the other part is just being immersed in the story, like whatever story we're covering, just making sure we're showing you know as many sides to the story as possible. Um, Because it's amazing how much influence producers have, and I'm sure you being, having been on The Apprentice, you know what goes on behind the scenes and how much, you know, how much influence a producer can have on what gets, what an audience receives at home. So I think that's a big responsibility that can be, you know, taken for granted sometimes, and um, yeah, and that's, that falls on the producer
0: were there any particularly memorable like segments or or stories that you covered during your time at the morning show in Australia that kind of um, would, you know, you want to share?
1: Uh, Yeah, I would say that a lot of the, um, so we covered a lot of news from, from the U S as well. Like I think um, Hurricane Sandy was a big, a big deal, not only for Americans, but also um, internationally, like even though it didn't affect us uh, immediately, just, you know, just seeing the footage uh, from, from that, uh, disaster was um was definitely you know, eye opening, and um, I remember being. I think it happened on a weekend, and I was the only producer on on staff that weekend. So we have a very skeleton staff uh, on the weekend. So just being kind of the go to person and just taking responsibility for like what the information that we're getting right, making sure it's accurate. You know, cross referencing different sources and just. I, yeah, I definitely remember taking that responsibility very seriously because, you know, people, especially when it's a story where people, you know, were hurt, they are victims, like making sure that we are being, we're, you know, presenting the story in the most accurate way possible. And again, considering all, all voices involved so that I remember thinking, wow, I'm the only one here in the studio. I really need to make sure that my, you know, I cross my T's and dot my I's and make sure the story is, um, is what it needs to be. Yeah,
0: it's really interesting. Um, I, I read this about this a lot in different books, and memoirs, and people that I come across in these sort of podcasts that I do. That like these small like moments that have like changed the course of your life. For example, with yourself, you mentioned obviously moving back to Indonesia, spend time with your your um your family there, and then you know falling into this opportunity with um in the entertainment business, which led to the the Emmy, which will come on to soon um it's really amazing right that these these small 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 things kind of makes a big difference when you look back at them but i guess you also have to the serendipity of it but you also have to at the same time put yourself forward and be in a position to take the opportunity right um as well as it being presenting to itself which i find interesting um what what size was the audience actually of um the morning show for example like how many people would tune into that
1: that's a good question Jeffrey. um i think it was just one about just a little over a million um the australian market is obviously um, quite small compared to New York or the US. Um, and actually that leads me to like one of the reasons I decided to nice. move to New York. Yeah. It was because I was already producer um, in my early twenties. I wanted, I was at the, you know, one of the biggest networks in Australia already. It was, you know, the top morning show for that time slot. It's like, where to from here? You know, I, I started asking myself that question and that's what led me to, Basically, you know, <laughs> I left my job about like just a couple of weeks after receiving an offer, just you know, with a for a raise or promotion, and I very gracefully just declined the offer and said, "Look, I need to see what what's out there, what's in New York, um, being you know the hub of journalism, especially um, news uh, news production." So I was very determined at a young age to make sure that you know I at least, you know, try to see what's out there because I didn't want to live the rest of my life wondering what if.
0: That's, uh, that's awesome. Where do you think that comes from? Like, is that still from your parents, your family, or you just, you just kind of, I don't know, I'm curious.
1: It's funny because my parents never, they were very, you know, encouraging in terms of, you know, I can do what anything I want to do. Uh, But they never, you know, said, you know, you should try New York or try a different market. Like they never pushed me in that direction direction uh, i would say that my first taste of new york came actually earlier when i spent a semester in new york as a, a 10th grader just um, on an exchange program so right. i got my first taste of new york so that was another seed that was planted early on that gave me that courage to and you know wow. desire to to pursue a life in new york
0: wow so you decide you want to you know explore new york like explain how that process then works like you know was it was easy to get a visa did you get the job first like what happened?
1: Yeah. So, so I, Although I spent most of my childhood in Indonesia and Australia, I was actually born in the US. So luckily enough, I did, I do have an American passport. And that really helped uh, in terms of so my parents, that's again credit to my parents. They went to school here, but they knew they weren't gonna live here. So they thought, okay, let's make sure when our daughter is born, she, you know, she's born in the US. So that means exactly. It's like it was just again, they were, you know, very forward thinking in that way. And they they knew they never pushed me to come back to the U S but they knew they wanted me to have that option. Right. So I actually got to skip all the bureaucratic, you know, paperwork that comes with visa applications. I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, But yeah, when I came here, I, I'd only kept in touch, I think with one person um, that I, kept in touch from my exchange. And so um, they helped me get set up a little bit. But honestly, I just kind of went on Craigslist and went and looked for a room, you know, in Tribeca, got a room there. And uh, yeah, and just started applying for jobs. I didn't have a job waiting for me when I got here. Uh, I didn't have an apartment to live in. It was, you know, kind of a month to month basis. Wow. Uh, so yeah. So I just decided to pack up my life and just see, I was, you know, it was, again, it was just that question. Like, I don't want to regret not taking this chance while, you know, especially while I was younger and wondering what if, so that was like the main, the main driver for me. And uh, yeah. And when I got here, I got here in November. Mm-hmm. I arrived in November and then I was looking for apartments. I couldn't even create a bank account because I didn't have social security number. My parents Bye. had not given me a social security number because they knew we were leaving the country that they right. didn't see the point right. so that was a whole ordeal just trying to get a social security number um that's very important here and just kind of going through the interview process for that um especially when um, the officials saw that i had grown up in indonesia which is like a red alert country for you know terrorism and this is post 9-11 right oh, okay. so there was a whole kind of interrogation process that i had to go through to wow. you know basically prove that i wasn't you know training with um terrorists while i grew up in Indonesia so uh so yeah that was um definitely the first hurdle I faced when I moved here um, but other than that it's just you know finding leasing an apartment again with no credit history I had never owned a credit card before I moved here um no social, social security record other than you know from when the application came through uh so yeah I was looking for a job looking for a, looking for a job looking for an apartment in a new country um definitely unfamiliar to me because I left when I was a baby um so I don't have connections here in New York specifically and yeah just um trying to set up a new life it was honestly quite thrilling like as scary as it it was it was also thrilling at the same time like it was very exciting for me as again a young girl it was my first kind of experience living outside of you know my family home so yeah it was a great great experience
0: that's awesome um and did you then just um, up from applying? Did that's that where Good Morning America, the role came there, or was there something before that happened? There
1: was definitely something before that. Uh, the springboard to to that was um, again Craigslist was my best friend um, <laughs> when I first moved to New York. Um, I uh, actually got a part time job at a a TV studio, so like a TV recording studio. Um, so they do like satellite links for interviews. So guests would come to the studio, okay. and then have an interview with you know Good Morning America or some other some other show, and and then they leave. Um, so I actually was a studio operator for just a couple of months, uh, so that December January period. And during that time, I was actively you know looking for for producer roles because I knew that I already had that producer background from Australia. I just wasn't sure how you know how it would it would acknowledged here in the u.s market Mm -hmm. um so yeah i um, ended up emailing a bunch of networks i had some like fun informational interviews i remember just emailing the executive producer of a cnn show and not expecting much from it and it was very like hi i'm chris i just came from australia it was very like very innocent email and yeah and he actually sat down with me He, he offered me a freelance job. But the funny thing is that happened at the same time as the uh, Good Morning America opportunity came and that was a more permanent job. So I mm-hmm. definitely ended up going with the Good Morning America show. Um, but again, it just involved with emailing a lot of people, um, you know, trying to uh, see if, some, if anyone in my network was in that, in that field. And yeah, and that's, how, that's how, um, how you can get your foot in the door.
0: It's, it's so true. I think someone asked me that with a friend last night and was asking me like how, for example, I think I mentioned this interview, um, I was like, oh, how, how do you like come across these people? And it's like, it's, you're right, it's persistent. It's like, uh, I think it's a Richard Branson quote. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but basically if you're trying to get like the A player in an industry, trying to get like Elon Musk, whatever, like, yeah, good luck. Like it's not going to happen. But like the, the tiers below that, that are still super successful and interesting whatever else. Like you'd be surprised not people really take the time to just reach out with a straightforward email or whatever the case may be, and, and as is the case with you. You know just actually pulling the time in and, and finding out who they are a bit about them maybe or something um, you'd be amazed how how much people are willing to help you know i think again we, we grew up in this world or this world now like we all think everyone's out for themselves and maybe a bit cynical and you know and, and and who's helping each other and i think actually there are lots of people out there as i'm sure you'll you'll attest to that are genuinely just trying to help help where they can and um we'll, we'll, we'll offer the advice if, if they can or a position or whatever the case may be you know I think yeah people just need to reach out more and um, I don't like the word networking because I think people think it's like this is really like you've got to be a certain way and you've got to act a certain way and you've got to be in a certain meeting but like you know use the tools available like LinkedIn or you can find email addresses almost anywhere now most people and yeah if you just like smart with it and you you box clever as my uh, trainer says like you know you'd be amazed what you what you can get and who you can get to meet and, um, and where that might lead
1: exactly exactly and you, i'm a big believer in you know you lose you lose out on 100 percent of the chances you don't take so um there is a way to do it without you know being a pest and you know there's a polite way to do these things and um i think that's important to be mindful of but again if you don't take the chance and and like i said like getting a thousand no's is better than you know not knowing you know what and again wondering what if so very totally true. on the same page as you there.
0: very very true so you start in Good Morning America and is are you starting as a producer there or is it different ties with the same thing? Like how's that work?
1: Yeah, I was actually as a started as a production assistant. So I would say that's a glorified intern. <laughs> it's like one step <laughs> up from intern. Uh-huh. Um, again, it was a great experience in that I wasn't none of my internships, you know, involved me getting coffee. I know that's kind of the stereotype with internships. Yeah. So I love that I got to just get very hands-on. Like it was a, definitely a steep learning curve. Um, Cause again, the Australian market is different from the U S market. I, I quickly noticed that the stories in this, in the U S uh, you know, news shows are a lot faster paced. So just getting to the point, like not burying, you know, the lead was one of the kind of golden nuggets that we had to keep in mind uh, as we put together these scripts. It's just, you know, there's it's just a lot faster pace, like you really get to the point up front and then you dive deeper um, instead of kind of working you up way up to to making your final point and, and kind of nailing it at the end so there was definitely some nuances like that that I noticed um, early on and I definitely had to adjust my writing style um, yeah again I ha- met some great you know veteran producers at this point who definitely showed me the ropes um, yeah and definitely just had to pick it up very quickly because um, when you're what's something that um, I've noticed from just looking at my looking back at my career is that um, I definitely have had to learn on the job I learned the best from a hands-on manner right I'm not one to sit in a classroom um kind of in an an academic setting and and just kind of absorb you know content from a textbook or or just being lectured at I definitely enjoy being hands-on with things so I think that's that's what the internships and this production assistant role allowed me to do
0: I'm interested if you um I'm sure you've come across it or if you've watched it or not the the Apple series called "The Morning Show." Have you ever watched it? Like,
1: yeah, I watched. Uh, I did watch two episodes. I must say, it kind of hit very close to home. Um, <laughs> obviously, with a show like that, there's a lot of exaggeration, but there is there is some some grain of truth in it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I had I had to ask. Like, I just yeah. particularly you also worked on The Morning Show in Australia. Like, exactly. kind of, um, so, Good Morning America. Like you said, the did, did the stories also differ. Like um, as compared to the Morning Show in australia or was it kind of the same just as you said just the way they were told was different
1: uh yeah i would say the stories i found like pitching ideas for stories was definitely a lot harder in the u.s like there was a lot more a higher bar for you know originality um, making sure the angle was you know specific and like you can't pitch a story that's too broad you have to have a very specific angle um there was definitely a higher bar for um like we have, I think we had this like group distribution email where you saw everyone's pitches as well as your own, and you can see kind of the variety and kind of the rigor behind each pitch. And every producer, you know, had their. The story that they they would fight for and I definitely was in in some of those battles myself so I just remember never, never having to fight for a story as much as I did um, at Good Morning America and that was again a good a good learning experience there um, so yeah other than I would say yeah the pacing of the stories also um, obviously we had a lot more resources at Good Morning America than in Australia so just having that broad network of you know International talent in different countries, depending on where the story is. Uh, I must say, one of my most memorable experiences as a GMA producer was uh, when I was covering breaking news, uh, specifically the uh, plane crashes. Uh, One of them was an Air Asia airplane that crashed near Malaysia, and then the Malay um, airline that crashed in 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 the Pacific as well, I believe. And uh, yeah, so that was a breaking news story. You know, we were. I was trying to stay on top of it, but the funny thing is I have that link to Indonesia uh, in terms of the language, so I was able to understand the press conferences that were coming out, um, so they didn't, uh, the network didn't need to hire a translator. I was kind of there, you know, at their news desk. I was pulled to their news desk to be able to just funnel, you know, facts and information through the entire network, uh, so that was, you know, I felt that was a very big responsibility, uh, but sadly for one of those stories, um, actually some family members were on the plane that was... Um, shot in uh, Ukraine um or near Ukraine and it was um it was a tra- you know I got a FaceTime call from my mom and she was sobbing and she was I me mean, oh my gosh our cousins were on that plane they were on their way from Amsterdam to Malaysia so that definitely was a you know a very hard you know long shift for me I think I ended up working like 15 hours that night um, again helping coverage of the story but also um, um, you know trying to console my family and um, yeah it was it was just it was just that was the one instant where kind of my personal life you know Across my my professional life in a very you know tangible way so uh yeah so that was definitely a one shift that I I I will not forget
0: the in terms of like pitching ideas because again this is obviously something relevant to if you're in business or in any any capacity really you know you always kind of you mentioned something earlier which I really really liked about the the Thompson Roots' job where um you um, learn the sales skills that are important for life like you sell you you know when you decide where you want to go for dinner with your partner you're selling like you're, you're people don't realize that you're constantly influencing maybe that's a better word people hate the word sales but you're constantly influencing or trying to get your point across and you want to go for a walk like you've got to kind of you know present it in a way that's like you know someone wants to go go with you or whatever the case maybe or coffee or whatever so that's very valid um in terms of pitching ideas like can you give us an idea an, an example of like an idea that you thought was great but for whatever for some reason didn't make it and then like something that did make it maybe why those things might have happened?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think um, I would say, you know, there were so many pitches, so <laughs> I'm not sure I can think of one like, <laughs> on top of my head right now, but just uh, a bit more broadly, I think just finding a specific angle to a story, right? Because a story isn't a full-fledged story until there's, you know, a, a point of view on it. And that's where kind of, you know, news, you know, you try to be objective and you're presenting the facts, but whether you like it or not, there's always an angle to a story. Like, you, it's it's hard, it's not, you know, it's not a checklist of just facts, right? There's no entertainment value in that. And television, you know, even on the news side, it does, you know, thrive on entertainment value too. Uh, so basically finding that 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 angle that's that's unique that's not you know that's not already in the headline of every you know article you google I think is important and just asking yourself you know what what have I what am I missing here because as in life, you know, we all have our blind spots and being able to just, first of all, be aware that we all have blind spots and then, you know, and then doing your research, asking people around you, hey, what do you think of this? Like, I think bouncing off ideas with um, colleagues and even, you know, Colleagues from outside your particular field is very, very helpful because um, you don't know like what kind of perspective they have on on a story and you, you may have missed it. So I think that's really important. Um, and yeah, I think pitching is a great skill. Um, and again, in my current work, I think pitching is more has pivoted more to negotiating right and i'm sure you're very familiar with how important negotiating is not just in the business world but also um in in life like you said in day-to-day life with your personal relationships as well
0: did you find um at times you alluded to a little bit there that there's like maybe i don't know good morning america like politically which where, where does it skew or if it does if it does it skew
1: uh, yeah, I think it's it's more on the left side of things. It's more liberal, uh, less conservative, for sure. Yeah.
0: Did you find ever that the political agenda or this, the angles that were being used were ever against your like personal views? You just had to kind of suck it up and, and deal with it like that kind of thing?
1: Um, I mean, there I will you know, I will never <laughs> kind of agree with with um, with, you know, the network or their point of view, 100 mm-hmm. percent. and yeah, that is definitely something that every producer producer has to grapple with. Um, luckily, I've it's never it never collided with my views so much to the point where you know I just couldn't you know take the story and produce it. Uh, so especially because our show, as much as there's a there's like kind of hard news in the first half hour, but then everything else is more entertainment based, I definitely did not encounter that as much as maybe some of my other colleagues who did the primetime news, for example.
0: That makes sense. And it brings it on to um I guess it's the Emmy behind you, but I uh, I've having looked into it, you want more than one Emmy, is that correct? Or from the from the work you did, is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um I actually want so I want two Emmys. We're our show was, you know, nominated for a bunch every year, but we finally kind of won that one year in 2016. Uh, so one of my Emmys is just for the general, like Good Morning America, just just for being a producer on Good Morning America. So our whole show won um, as a, I think, the best morning show that year. And then um, more specifically, um, the second Emmy that I won was for a breaking news uh, coverage of the very tragic uh, shooting at the Orlando. Uh, nightclub. Uh, this was, I think, again in mid 2016. Um, and the funny—well, it's not funny—but the the strange um, kind of coincidence here is that I was filling in for a producer or the lead producer for the weekend Good Morning America show. Uh, so I was filling in as the supervising producer. So I was basically. Um, so this was kind of my first foray into kind of leading the team instead of just being a producer working on a specific story. I was actually looking overlooking the whole show and looking at the rundown and making sure you know things were where they needed to be you know again keeping an eye on stories that were coming in you know just making decisions on whether this story should stay this story should go so I was this was a new role for me I was not you know I wasn't used to being in that position before and then um, this is when this story came out and I remember working at starting work at two p.m., and I was slated to go till maybe around four a.m., which is when the morning team comes in uh, for that morning show. So I was, you know, kind of almost like getting ready to leave. Like by the time it was three a.m., I was, you know, kind of packing up. You know, I'm ready. I have my notes to hand off to the next uh, the morning team, and then I was ready to go home. And then this news like just slow like like news tidbits about, you know, a shooting in Orlando started coming in, it came in at around 303, like 310. And I was trying to decide, you know, is this like, how big is this story? Because as you probably know, like the shootings happen in local neighborhoods, unfortunately, in America, you know, quite, quite frequently. So I was trying to gauge how, you know, how big a story this was. And the thing is um, it was up to me to quote, unquote, mobilize the troops, right. Because a lot of our senior executive producers, they were all, you know, asleep at that time. They weren't uh, up yet to come in later. So I had to make the decision whether to basically mobilize, you know, our camera crew um, in, in my, in Florida and making sure that everyone was kind of where they needed to be like, it's, you know, it's a lot of resources to mobilize if the story wasn't worth, you know, worth um, doing all that for. And it was, yeah, it was on me to decide whether to do that. And I, you know, as more and more, um, you know, um, information came in, I decided, yeah, this is, this is not just, you know, your average, um, incident. So, so yeah, I, um, made the call. I called my executive producer and said, you know, sorry to wake you up, but this, there's a big story. We might need to, you know, throw out our whole rundown and just cover the story. And and we did the whole show that morning just focused on, um, you know, it was at the time, the biggest, uh, mass shooting in the, in the U S history. I think, uh, I think about 50, almost 50 people lost their lives. It was very tragic. It was very, um, yeah, it was a very hard story um, to, to cover, especially because it happened uh, also so close to our, um, our show, our show started, you know, taping at 7am. So we only had a kind of couple hours and basically the work that I, you know, that we, that my team and I did from the day before was all, was all thrown out. So it was kind of, yeah, it was, Um, it, I think I worked 22 hours that day. So, or that shift. So it was a very long day, very hard day. And uh, yeah, and it wasn't, and I think, um, it was hard for me to like I think every producer has experienced this where you're covering you know an emotional a tragic story but you just have to you know have to almost detach yourself a little bit from the emotions and just just you know the show must go on.
0: No that makes yeah. makes a lot of sense and then I think you then move totally outside of the um, television world is that correct the next thing?
1: Yeah. So, so after three years um, at Good Morning America, I wanted I, I wanted to you know see what else is out there, and also the hours, as you have noticed, were quite challenging, right? Like for, you know, to be pulling, you know, 12 hour shifts, 22 hour shifts, like that is mm-hmm. sure. There's not such a major breaking news story every day, but it does take a toll on you. And I worked overnight as well. And I have so much respect for, you know, everyone who, who works, you know, the graveyard shift as they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, cause it does, especially for someone who's, um, who likes, you know, who likes working during the day and was a morning person at some point, it was very hard to, to sustain that. Um, so, yeah, after after three years of working those um, very intense hours, I was craving a more something more stable, something kind of, you know, kind of like a nine to five, which is I know what some people try to avoid. Um, but for me, that that seemed a very appealing at the time. and I just needed needed to rest. So. I actually spent a year year and a half just kind of just recuperating from those really taxing like physically and uh, mentally you know taxing years I was definitely burned out from from those uh, all that work and I just needed to again figure out who I was outside of you know Carissa the producer and and yeah I definitely was lucky enough to have you know enough savings to just kind of take my time and and see what's next and um by the time I was kind of ready to jump back into, into work, I actually just um, came across a marketing role. And I have friends in marketing, and I always was kind of interested in it, but I'd never been in that in that field before. And then I ended up just, uh, working for a nonprofit uh, and did some marketing and communications work for them while I try to figure out what's next, like what is um, for someone who'd been in the TV world for most of her career, it was was definitely not easy trying to find what's next. And honestly, I just kind of stayed open. I didn't, I wasn't targeting anything again, after years of just being a hunter, like in my job and in my life and in my work, just just hunting for certain things, always having kind of the next target in mind Mm -hmm. to not having anything that was quite, yeah, that was quite a life-changing experience in that uh, it was the first time that I felt lost and I didn't have a clear direction for myself. And uh, yeah. And I kind of just was open to, you know, whatever came my way. And I just, you know, asked around, talked to different people and kind of just want to hear their story and what they do and what they enjoy and don't enjoy and just kind of figure it out from there. Um, so yeah, this marketing role that I did with the nonprofit was was definitely kind of a, a nice breather. It was, you know, again, a, just a way for me to, 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 f- to find myself again i guess
0: mm-hmm. so you yeah. did the marketing role for a few years and i guess within there you you found things that you really enjoyed and you found things that you maybe didn't enjoy so much and you, you maybe reflect upon your tv career and you go right i really love that part about it but maybe not this part and is that how you slowly meandered to to then through to apple and to foursquare is that kind of how that came to be
1: yeah, I think uh, I think I, uh, I heard you uh, in one of your previous episodes that um you really like that quote from Steve Jobs about, you know, connecting the dots when yeah, you look back. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I try almost like going to use it every episode, but pretty much, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that's so true. And that's exactly what I was doing as I kind of stumbled here and there and looking for my, my next thing was that I I just, like you said, connected the dots, looked up, looked back on my career and saw, you know, what could be transferable to other fields and, and the funny thing is, at that time, I was actually thinking of moving to Switzerland, because I've always had this fascination with Switzerland. Again, I'd spent a summer just um, going to a French program when I was 14. And just kind of, I just fell in love. And I would love to live there maybe in, when I'm um, in a few years. But at the time, I was very, you know, there was nothing kind of holding me back, you know, in New York. So I thought, you know what? the whole world is there. Like where do I want to live next? Um and you know, having lived in other countries growing up, you know, I've always had that propensity to to explore and and live. I, I don't. I'm not. I would. I. I would say I'm a serial mover instead of a serial tourist. Like I love the idea of living and working in a place instead of just visiting it on vacation. So that was what intrigued me about um, about Switzerland. So then I started applying to jobs in Switzerland, and one of them was at Apple. So I applied for a job at Apple at an Apple store in Switzerland, um, and they called me for an interview here in New York instead. Uh, so, you know, when Apple <laughs> comes calling, you, you say, I, I decide to say, yes, I was, you know, I've, I'd already been an Apple, um, you know, user. Um, I remember f- graduating from university. My first gift to myself was getting my first iPhone. So that was always my memory of my first or my first experience with Apple. Uh, so, yeah, I um, answered a call for an interview at the flagship, you know, 24 hour store at Fifth Avenue here in New York and uh yeah and then i just said yes to to a part-time role because i still i was still doing the marketing um job during the day so i just thought you know what why not meet some you know cool people i'd always heard that people who worked at apple were just very just very fun i'm sure you've walked into an apple store and became friends with someone who worked there uh so yeah that was um so i said yes to that and i didn't know where that would lead um so yeah i juggled um, the two jobs pretty much through um through pandemic like even um in the beginning of the pandemic I was still juggling two jobs and then the nonprofit wasn't able to uh, sustain me on the payroll because of the pandemic so so then I just went full-time uh, with Apple uh, but yeah I so I worked at the Apple store for about seven months uh, before we all went remote
0: nice um, yeah. and then from from there you you, you went to Foursquare and how, how did that come about
1: yeah, so it actually started. I would say Apple working at the Apple store is definitely different from like the corporate side of tech, right? Mm-hmm. So one thing that uh, Apple offers its retail employees is what's called a career experience. So it's basically an internal internal you know six month stint to get a taste or some experience in the corporate side of right. Apple. So that was a program that I applied for and I uh, was offered a position with the Apple Pay team on the business development side. So that was my first taste of, you know, the corporate tech world was actually, you know, through the store and then applying for that internal program and, and getting it and spending six months working with the team that was based in, that's based in Cupertino. But because of the pandemic, I was doing it remotely from home okay. in New York. So, so, yeah, that was um, and that's the experience that opened many doors Um, after, you know, I knew there was an end date to that experience and, you know, I didn't really think I was ready to go back to the store. I wanted to see, you know, what's next in that business development world. And um, I started applying to different um, tech companies here in New York, New York and California, but more so in New York. And I actually ended up receiving a couple of offers, one from a data science AI company, also based here, and Foursquare. And I mean, i'm really grateful for that six-month experience at apple pay because it did open a lot of doors i think i interviewed with 10 different companies um ended up getting two offers out of the 10 so uh yeah so it was again it was um that's how kind of again i did not plan any of this because again like as you know i was still kind of looking you know just being open to what's out there and and that's how that's how it turned out and now i'm at foursquare
0: That's amazing. I'm just curious, for Apple Pay, what were you doing um, in that role?
1: Yeah. So the team's goal was to onboard as many merchants as possible to have Apple Pay as a payment option, whether it's on their website, on their e-commerce website or their apps. So basically just reaching out to different businesses. So we would actually kind of go on people's, you know, store e-commerce websites and see, oh, if I purchase something, can I use Apple Pay to pay oh, yeah, for yeah. the item? So so if it's a no, then, you know, we, we go after them and, and reach out to them and see if they, they would be open to mm-hmm. um, putting Apple Pay on their website. So it was, and the big misconception is that, you know, people think these, you know, merchants have to pay to to put Apple Pay on their website. But actually, Apple Pay is completely free for both its merchants and and the end user and the end customer. Um, We're not like Visa, they're not like Visa or MasterCard who have, you know, a processing fee. Uh, So yeah, so that was um, what I did. And um, I would say, again, it was my first taste of kind of the corporate tech world. And yeah, it was, um, I learned a lot in terms of, I mean, Apple has, you know, a kind of that cloud, right, that comes with Apple and reaching out, you know, you don't have to explain who Apple is when you're doing your outreach to, to various people. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so that definitely helped, but it's, you know, you don't want to, you know, I think Amp- there's a humility to Apple and and how, you know, the culture that, that makes sure that, you know, you're not, we're really coming in from like a a helpful uh, point of view, and we're trying to, to trying to help these businesses, especially the smaller businesses, um, just you know have get get more transactions, get more um, payment traffic through their properties. And
0: uh, and now with with Foursquare in the business development world again, um, what have you? So, so it's, I think it's really interesting how your career has gone so like in so many different directions, and you've constantly looked for for different challenges, whether it's moving countries or cities or or, or what have you. Um, what advice would you have for someone either whether well, starting out in a career, they're not sure whether they want to go or they're in the middle of a career and they kind of, I'm a passionate as i not like, I think a lot of people are in that space. And after the pandemic as well, I think people have kind of maybe taken a bit of a pause and gone, do I really enjoy what I'm doing? Like what's your advice to as to how to follow your passions more, I guess, like how you've done that.
1: Yeah. I think um, the first step, I mean, I don't, I don't, first of all, I just want to say I don't have all the answers. (laughs) I'm also still um, learning as I go. But I would say that uh, one of the first steps is just to to take the chances that you've been itching to take and maybe had put off um, due to, you know, circumstances, uh, you know, more urgent life things come up. And as we all know, so just just going back to kind of seeing like where like those like little like I guess, nudges in your head that say, oh, you know, try this, try that and just seeing where, where those may have pointed and where you may have suppressed, you know, that side of things um, previously and just kind of starting there and then just being, just saying yes to a lot of new experiences, right? And even if you end up in you know a place that you don't enjoy or a work that you don't enjoy, at least you know what you don't want. And I think that helps you kind of filter out um, what you don't enjoy doing. And I think that's, it's a process of elimination. Um, For me anyway, like, as you said, my career path has not been linear and it's taken a lot of experimentation and just kind of trying uh, new things and learning on the way. So I would say for for those of us who, who don't, who aren't following a linear path, I think it just takes a lot of experimentation and just not being afraid to, take those chances and I think one of some of the best experiences in my career have been just from the the things I didn't that were outside of my my plan or what I had in my what I I had imagined
0: that's awesome do you do you know where where you're trying to go next or you're just enjoying your time at Foursquare and um see where that goes right now
1: yeah, I'm definitely definitely enjoying it. Definitely learning a lot about the location um, technology, location intelligence. I'm definitely working a lot with data, which is not something I've I've been um, exposed to a lot in my career. And I'm really actually um, excited that um, I'm taking a strategic negotiations course um, at Harvard Business School. It's um, it's just a one week kind of boot camp um, in March, and I'm really excited because. I've always been a f- like like you, as we kind of touched on in this episode, uh, in this conversation. You know, we talked about sales skills, pitching, and then I think I mentioned negotiation. And negotiation, I think, again, is one of those skills that you can apply to any field with you know anyone you're interacting with. And I just I've always kind of negotiated negotiated by instinct, mm-hmm. and I try to be as strategic as possible. But I think having some frameworks as a guide would would really kind of help take me take that to the next level. So I'm, that's definitely a skill that I'm focused on um, improving on and just, you know, building that confidence with practice from, from my current work at Foursquare. So yeah, that's, um, that's definitely what's next for me. And, um, and just one thing to answer your earlier question about like, you know, advice, but it's not just, it's not advice. It's more like a tip is that it's okay for your dreams to evolve and change over time. Like I started in television thinking I would be in that field, you know, for the rest of my life and it's, it's okay. Like, it's okay to change your mind and find something new. I think, um, yeah, I think it's not, helpful to anyone, you know, to pigeonhole yourself in a specific field. And again, making that your identity. And I love that, you know, you yourself, you know, having been on the apprentice and with your current app development work, like you, and I think um, you were in the jewelry business for a while. Like, I think it's so great to have, again, just a wealth of experiences that you can't really, you know, you can't really buy with, you know, money or anything like that. It's just from, from trying out and being exposed to different things. And, and yeah, and I'm a big believer in, 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 in that and just being exposed to as many new things as possible.
0: Awesome. Well, it's been a very, very interesting interview. I I thought it would be, um, but you never quite know where these things go, but like, I've really enjoyed like talking to you and hearing your story and, um, yeah, I'm sure I'm gonna to have to speak to you afterwards about the, the Sydney um, uh, situation and, and and some other things besides.
1: Definitely. No, it's been a pleasure, and I look forward to um, you know maybe meeting up with you in Sydney sure. at some point. Hopefully, they um, open the borders to you know to foreigners, um, you know, non Australians, non citizens, um, non residents soon.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Carissa.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it, Charles.